Okay, we are in our confession, and we are on chapter 26. Chapter 26, and I actually made a blunder this week. Uh, I got paragraph 4 ready, and I should have got paragraph 3 ready. So we're going to do paragraph 4, then we'll go back and do paragraph 3 next time. Is that, sound, is that okay? I messed up because I had notes already written down. And anyway, what a... What an adult. Okay. <clears throat> Which it says there in paragraph three, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. So there you go. So the, the, we made an error. So we're going to do paragraph four, and then we'll go back and do paragraph three next time. And I was really fired up for this paragraph four. Uh, so it's on my mind, and I've got some things written down there. So we'll do that, and then uh, back to three, and then onward from that point, from that point on. Is that going to mess you up back there, Braden? Nope, not at all. Okay, good. All right. <clears throat> so chapter 26, paragraph 4. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we uh, come to you this afternoon, Lord, asking for you again to teach us, Lord, through your word. Lord, we know that you are the Lord and head of the church. Uh, it is your church that you have founded, Christ is the one who has purchased the church with his own blood, and he and he alone possesses authority over us. He and he alone can command us, Lord, what it is that we should believe and what it is that we should do and practice in our life. Lord, we know that no man has this authority, that, Lord, even those ministers that you have placed in your church, Lord, they do not possess ultimate authority, but only a subjugated authority. Lord, only to lead and to, uh, to teach, Lord, according to your will. And so, Lord, we pray that we would never follow, Lord, the ideas of men, but rather we would always be submissive to Christ, Lord, to his will and to his word. So, Lord, may we build this church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And, Lord, may we never build upon any other foundation. Lord, no foundation of any man. And Lord, may your word rule and reign over us in all things. Because we know when your word is ruling over us, it is Christ himself who is reigning, Lord, in our midst. So Lord, make these things true of us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 26, paragraph 4. This is what the paragraph says. And think about... Uh, just as we read this, where will you find people speaking with this type of clarity <clears throat> today concerning uh, false teachings and false churches, right? So who talks like this today? Very, very few people. Okay, chapter 26, paragraph 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call institute, order, and govern the church. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So here we have a statement concerning the headship of the church belonging to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that God has given to Christ, 
to be the head of the church. He is to rule over the church. He does rule over the church through his word. He and he alone has supreme sovereignty over these things. No man can possess that sovereignty. Right? No man can take for himself this mantle of head of the church. Right? And here specifically, they single out one particular church and one particular man, that being the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. That the Pope who claims to be the head of the church. The Pope claims to have the authority of Christ conferred to him, and then he rules over the church based upon his own whims, ideas, and fancies. Right? Not, he's not ruling over the church under the authority of Christ, but in many ways, he's ruling over the church in contradiction to the authority of Christ. And therefore, he does not have this authority. He is not the head of the church, but rather, he is the Antichrist. He is the man of lawlessness. He is the son of destruction who exalts himself in the church against Christ and everything that is good and right and decent in this world. And Christ will come and destroy him on the day of his coming. So here they're speaking very clearly, right? Do they mince any words about what they think about Roman Catholics? What about the Pope? Do they think he's a swell chap, right? That he's a good guy? that we can get along with him and agree to disagree with the Pope? They're not doing that at all. No, they're making it very clear what they think about the Roman Catholic Church and what they think about this uh, poisonous, rotten head of the church who is the Pope, that he is not in any way a representative of Christ, that the Roman Catholic Church is not in any way a true church of Christ, but rather it is a synagogue of Satan. It is a church of Satan, and Satan himself is the head of the Roman Catholic Church, and he rules over that church through his emissary, through his false teacher, who is the Roman Catholic Pope, right? That's what they say about it. So would we read this and think in any way that they would believe you can be a Roman Catholic and a true Christian? Of course not. No way. And would they be telling people in the Roman Catholic Church that they needed to repent and come out of it? Absolutely. There's no way that they would accommodate Christianity with Roman Catholicism. And they're not soft on it, right? They're very, very clear. I would encourage you as well to read uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Right? This is the chapter that is used. We'll read it here in a second. This is the chapter used by the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, to teach and promote uh, the Pope, okay, the Pope and his position and authority as the head over the church. So that is the passage they use to grant to the Pope this authority that he does not have. Read what John Calvin or John Gill, these are two commentators, Bible commentators, Calvin who lived in the 1500s and Gill who lived in the 1700s. Read what these men had to say about that passage. Listen to the way that they talk about these issues and then Compare that to what is happening today in the modern church. Because in many churches today, even in many Protestant churches, in evangelical churches, there has been a softening toward Catholicism. And there are many today who are saying that we can hold hands with, we can work together, we can work alongside Roman Catholics. You can be a Christian, a true Christian, a true believer. You can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and be a Roman Catholic. 
but this is not what they say. And this is contrary to Scripture, right? That's the most important thing. It's contrary to Scripture because the very foundation of the church is itself corrupt and polluted. So this is the way that we need to talk about false teaching, false teachers, about corruptions in the church, right? And there are many people today who would hold up this confession of faith. They will hold up the Westminster Confession of Faith, other great Protestant confessions of faith, and say, oh, we love these things, but who will never talk in this way about Roman Catholics or any other false teacher. And then when we talk in this way about Roman Catholics, because I don't have a problem doing that, or about other false teachers, they'll accuse us of being harsh and unloving and argumentative, mean-spirited, and those kinds of things. Well, if we are mean-spirited and harsh, then so are these people, right? The ones that wrote this confession, they are harsh and mean-spirited as well. So you can't have it both ways, right? And if you reject us for doing this, and you got to reject them as well. You cannot hold to these things. But here, they are right. Also, we might mention, because we brought this up this morning, on many issues, the Roman Catholics are correct, right, in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity. They have an orthodox view of the doctrine of the Trinity. They have an orthodox view of the humanity and the deity of Christ, right? They believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So on some of these issues, they are in agreement with us and with the Bible, But on other issues, we have great disagreements with them, right? So can we say, well, because we agree on three or four or five issues, then we have the same faith? No, we can't do that. Because on other issues, we have great disagreements with them, and they disagree with the Scriptures. And that's why we cannot say, we can't just say, let's find our areas of commonality, and then we'll just talk about the areas that we have in common, and then we'll never talk about the areas that we are in disagreement. This is what's happening in the churches today. What is the lowest, lowest common denominator Christianity? Let's find what we all agree on, and that's all that we'll talk about, those are the things that are essential, then everything else is just, you know, vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, Rocky Road, ice cream, whatever you like, whatever flavor is your preference, you pick it, I'll pick mine, and then we'll all just make it to heaven one day, right? And if it doesn't matter, then why don't we all go back to the Church of Rome, right? Why not all be Roman Catholics if it doesn't matter what you believe? Let's all just be one big church together. Why do we have all these different denominations? Why is there all this division in the churches? If doctrine doesn't matter, let's all go back to Rome and we'll just be under the Roman Catholic Church. Right? That's what this relativistic spirit, this is what it ultimately leads to. It ultimately leads back to Rome and back to Roman Catholicism. And there is a movement today in the churches, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, for them to come back together, right? This ecumenical spirit, Catholics and Protestants working together, being together, all uniting together under the same banner. And even the Roman Catholics have softened their view concerning Protestants, right? When the Protestants first separated from the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholics pronounced an anathema upon them and said that all of those in the Protestant churches were accursed and they were all going to hell, right? So the Protestants were saying the Catholics were going to hell and the Catholics were saying the Protestants were going to hell, right? So everyone was saying everyone else was going to hell. But now the Catholics are saying, no, you can be a Protestant and still be be a Christian, still be a child of God. And many Protestants are saying, you can be a Catholic and still be a child of God, and you're still going to make it. And what this ultimately does is it undermines who? 
It undermines Christ, who is the head of the church. Because you have all of these differences, and we're saying none of it matters, but Christ says it does matter. So that's why we have to go to Christ. He is the head of the church and no one else. And he rules his church through his word, through his holy word. And wherever we disagree or deviate from the word of Christ, in that area, Christ is not ruling and reigning over us. And that's when we have to come under his authority and his submission. Okay, so with that, let's read these passages, and I have a few more for us to read as well. There it says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. So Christ is the head of the church. God the Father has given to him this designation, this appointment, and God the Father has conferred to Christ all authority has been given to him so that he is the one who has supremacy over the church. To call the church, that is, to call the elect out of the world and to bring them into the household of faith. Christ is the one who calls his sheep and then they come to him. He is the one also who institutes the church. He founds the church. He orders the church and he governs the church all according to his will. And he is the only one who has the right and the authority to do these things because God has given him this designation, not anyone else. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and no other person. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Speaking of Christ, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There in verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church. He, Christ, Christ and Christ alone, is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the head, and then we are individually members of his body and members one of another. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there, Jesus 
declares that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And who gave him this authority? His Father. So the Father gives the authority to the Son, to Jesus Christ, and then Christ is the one who rules and reigns, right? He is the one ruling and reigning, and then he commands his disciples to go and to teach, to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them into the church, right? Those who are believers, right? Not unbelievers, but believers, and then to teach them to observe everything that Christ has commanded, right? So Christ has the supremacy. He's the one that has the authority over these things. Now, in terms of the day in and day out order and ruling of the church, Christ does appoint under shepherds, right? He does appoint those that come alongside and serve Christ in the local church. That's what I do, right? As the pastor, but I do not have unilateral authority. I don't have ultimate authority. The authority of the minister is a delegated authority. He has authority from Christ, but he does not have authority to rule the church as he sees fit. He must rule the church according to the will of Christ. And how does he do this? Through the teaching of the Bible, right? That's why the most important thing that we do, the most important thing that I do, right, the one gift that is necessary for someone to be a minister is he has to have the ability to teach, to teach. This is what distinguishes the pastors from the deacons. In terms of qualifications, in terms of their morality and their character, their virtue, it's identical. But in terms of their gifting and calling, the minister, the pastor, has to be able to teach because that's the function of the pastor. He is to teach the people and so teach them the will of Christ because Christ is the head of the church and he rules the church through his holy word, which is taught to the people through the minister. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians, not even close. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. I don't know why I've got... Hebrews on the brain. Ephesians 4.11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there... He being Christ. Christ is the one who gives gifts to men. And the gifts he gives here are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And I take shepherds 
and teachers to be one and the same. The shepherds, that is the teachers, that being the pastors, the teachers in the church. So the way Christ rules is through those that have been given his word and who are teaching his word to the people. So that means then, just because there is a group of people that calls themselves a church, and just because they have a pastor, and just because the pastor gets up and says some words, it does not mean that that's a true church. It is only a true church if the word of God is being faithfully taught. If the word of God is not being faithfully taught, it's not a church. I don't care what they call themselves. And he's not a pastor. I don't care what he calls himself. At that point, it becomes a synagogue of Satan or a church of Satan because it's no longer under the rule of Christ, but rather they're doing their own thing, right? They're under their own rule and they're following the devil, right? If it's not following the word of God, which is the truth, then they're following lies. And who is the father of all lies? It is the devil himself. We'll get to that in just a a moment. So Christ then is the one who has ultimate supreme authority over the church. He delegates this authority to the shepherds who are not allowed to rule the church according to their own whims and fancies, but are to rule the church under the authority and leadership of Christ. Christ then is the one with ultimate authority. And that is why the word of Christ must have supremacy among us. This is how Christ rules over us, through his word, through his word. So the more serious we take the word of God, the more dedicated we are to it, the more we are teaching it, right? the more we are adhering to it, then the more and the greater authority Christ has in us, the greater purity we're going to have, the more righteousness we'll have, and the more we will be pleasing to Christ. And this is why, just in terms of symbolism, right, between a Roman Catholic church and a Protestant church, right, in a Roman Catholic church, if you've ever been to one, the pulpit is always off to the side, and front and center in a Roman Catholic church is the Eucharist or the table, right, where they will serve the Lord's Supper. Because for them, the sacrament is supreme. The Word of God is secondary. The sacrament is supreme because through the sacrament, we receive the grace of God, whether we believe it or not. Whether we have faith or not, none of that matters. Whether there's the teaching of the Word or not, all that matters is that you go to the church and you receive communion from the priest, then you're going to make it to heaven one day, right? Whether you know anything about it or not. The Protestant churches... Typically, in the Protestant churches, front and center is the pulpit. The pulpit where the minister will get and stand and open up the Word of God and teach the Word of God. Because the Protestants understood that the sacrament, apart from the Word of God, apart from faith, is of no benefit at all. Right? It's useless. What good is it to do the Lord's Supper if you don't know what it means? It doesn't do you any good at all. You have to have faith. You have to believe and have an understanding in what it means before it's going to be of any value to you. Well, where are you going to get the understanding necessary to know what this means? You've got to go to the Word of God. The Bible has to be clearly taught. And the pulpit was then for them a symbol of the authority the supremacy of the Word of God in the churches. Now, in the modern churches today, what, what do you have? Well, they don't have anything, right? It's a stage. It's a big uh, parade and a light show. Most of them don't even have a pulpit. They just walk around, you know, here and there, 
uh, just doing whatever, doing whatever they want to do. Or have you seen these uh, transparent, these glass-looking uh, pulpits that they all, they all got these things. They love them, you know. So they're doing this type of stuff. It's all nonsense. And they want to get rid of that because they just want it to be a conversation, a conversation between the, the teacher conversing with the people. It's like a, a group therapy session is what it is because they don't take the Bible seriously either. Okay, but that's not the way that we have to be. We have to take the Bible very seriously because it is through the teaching of the Word of Christ that Jesus rules and reigns over his church. And we want Christ ruling over us. We want him to be the good shepherd over us. Okay, next, the Pope. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Here, the Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be head of the church. Now, when they say this, they're not misrepresenting the Roman Catholic position. This is indeed what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They teach and believe that the Pope is the head of the church, that he is the successor of the Apostle Peter, and that this succession was granted to him from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. So let's turn to that passage, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. This is the passage used by the Roman Catholic Church to establish the position of the Pope. And what they claim is that Peter, though there's no evidence for this, Peter was the first bishop of the church in Rome. And then after Peter died, whoever the next bishop was, whoever Peter passed that authority to, he then became the next bishop in Rome. And the authority of Peter was given to that man, and then it passes from generation to generation to generation, all the way down to the present day, the current pope is the successor of Peter, the apostle, and Jesus gave Peter specifically the authority and the headship of the church, and then it passes down from generation to generation through the Roman Catholic popes, okay? Now, all of this, you might say, well, that sounds far-fetched. It is. It's all a fantasy that they just made up to suit their own wicked, evil passions. There's not even any evidence that Peter was ever the bishop of Rome, the pastor of the church in Rome. No one knows that. They're just establishing that because this is what they want to be true. Okay, Matthew 16, verse 13, and we'll see clearly here that even their interpretation of this passage is a complete farce and a complete corruption of the true interpretation. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here we have this uh, very uh, popular or or, uh, commonly known passage where Peter confesses who Christ is. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? What is it? What are the people saying out there concerning me, right? Concerning the Son of Man, who do they say that I am? And then they answer him. Some people are saying John the Baptist. Some people are saying Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am, right? What is your confession concerning me, right? My person and who I am. And then Simon Peter replied. Now, when Simon Peter replies, this is not his confession alone. He's the mouthpiece, right? He's speaking. He's the one that answers. But this is what they all believed other than Judas Iscariot. He would have confessed this, but we know he was a fraud. But the 11 good ones, this is a light confession of all of them. This is what all of them believe. And they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? This is who you are. Now, is that a true confession? Yes, this is true. You are the Christ. You are the promised Christ. And you're the son of the living God. So they understand both the humanity, the divinity of Christ, and that he is the promised Christ who will take away their sin, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? This knowledge of the person of Christ and his significance is not something that any man can attain to through his own wisdom, his own understanding. It must be revealed to a man by God, by the Father who is in heaven. So he's buffering them, lest they be proud or wise in their own eyes and think that they are better than other men because they've come to the right knowledge. Right? Yes, you are blessed, but the reason you are blessed is not because of anything in you, but because of the grace of God given to you. My Father has revealed this to you. And it is a blessing for God to reveal Christ to us because then we have salvation, right? This is who revealed it. And then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, right? You are Peter, right? This is the name that Christ gave to Simon, Peter, right? Which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, when he says on this rock, does he mean literally on just the apostle Peter, he's going to build his church? Is Peter the foundation of the church? Who's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the church is built upon... The confession of Christ, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what our faith rests upon, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation that the church resides on, not the person of Peter. Now, what the Roman Catholics say is that, no, it is built upon the person of Peter. Peter is the one that the church is built upon, and he is the supreme of the apostles, 
And then Christ has given to Peter, you'll see in the next verse, um, verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is he given that exclusively to Peter? Because that's what the Roman Catholics teach. Christ gave to Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and then it is up to him and his successor to open heaven for one and to close it for another. Well, one, also, does it say anything about him having a successor? Does it say anything about him passing that on to the next person? Even if you concede that their interpretation is right concerning Peter, where does it say in this passage that Peter and a succession of Peters will have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Right? It never says that, and this interpretation is completely corrupt. Christ simply means that he is the foundation of the church, and it is the true confession of faith in Christ. That is the rock that the church is built upon, the person and work of Christ. And yes, to the faithful, to the church, are given the keys to the kingdom of heaven in that the word of God, the gospel, is entrusted to us and we preach the gospel and as people believe the gospel, then we do make a declaration concerning their salvation, right? That they are children of God, right? Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, right? Whenever we are faithfully teaching the Bible, then what we are doing on earth, there is agreement with what is taking place in heaven. But in no way, shape, or form is Jesus passing authority from himself to the person Peter, who is then going to pass that authority to the next bishop of the church at Rome, who will eventually become the Pope all the way down to the present day. Right? Do you, does that make sense? The, right? Do you see how harebrained this is, how crazy and out. I mean, there's no basis for this here in this passage. But this is the passage they use to establish the position of the Pope and the succession of the Pope, right? Why it passes from one person to the next person to the next person. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that the Pope is himself infallible. It is the Pope who is infallible his interpretation of the Bible is infallible, even though one pope will contradict another pope. Well, if they're both infallible, how can one pope in one generation say one thing, and then the next pope in another generation contradict him if they're both infallible, and both of them are the vicar of Christ? Right? It doesn't, they're contradicting themselves all over the place. And all it is is them using the Bible, corrupting the Bible, a false interpretation, to grant themselves supreme authority over the church so that they can get filthy rich off of the backs of the people. And that's what they have done. And it is a complete perversion and corruption of this passage, and in no way, shape, or form is it, uh, can it be substantiated with the Word of God. And in terms of Roman Catholicism, the Pope is supreme, not the Word of God. Christ is not supreme. They would say Christ is supreme, but he's supreme through the Pope. We say that Christ is supreme, but he's supreme through his word, through his holy word that cannot change, not the corruption of some wicked man. And many of the popes through the years have been very immoral persons who have had children uh, without being married, so they're committing fornication, they're committing immorality, they're committing sodomy. Even the current pope is a communist. He's a socialist. 
So he's a double devil, right? He's a twice like deviled egg, right? Double devil, because not only is he a Catholic, he's also a communist, right? And he's promoting this stuff in the world, undermining everything that is good and right. And this is the largest so-called Christian denomination in the world. Still, the largest church in the world is the Roman Catholic Church, but it is not a true church. It is a false church, and the head is a false prophet. He is a false prophet. He is the head of a serpent, is what he is. So when we see that, should we be surprised? The largest church in the history of the world is a false church. So why should we be surprised in our own day that there are many false churches? That there's going to be false Baptist churches, false Methodist churches, false Pentecostal churches? Of course there's going to be false churches. This is the largest church in the history of the world, and it's not even true and right, but rather is false and contrary to everything. So this is how dangerous it is out there and why it is that we must cling with all that we've got to the Bible, to the sacred writings, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, as it says in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. So the Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be head of the church. It's impossible for him today. And it's blas- this is blasphemy. Amen. This is taking the name of the Lord in vain. It is idolatry as well because a man is taking for himself what belongs only to Christ. We can't do that, right? We cannot do those things. And there's so many corruptions within the... We don't even have time to talk about all of them. They're prevalent. It's inexcusable for anyone to think that Roman Catholics and the Roman Catholic Church is good, good and great, okay? So he's not. So if he's not the head of the church, then what is he? Well, and that's why they say he's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this was the common view during the time of the Reformation in the churches, the, the Reformed churches, the Protestant churches, is that the Catholic church was a false church and the Pope was the Antichrist. This is the way that they looked at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, 
with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So here in this passage, the apostle is telling the church that they should not be shaken in their faith, thinking that the day of the Lord has come. The second coming of Christ has taken place. And he's telling them that that's not going to happen, right, until the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, right? That's who they're saying is the Roman Catholic Pope. Now, whether we say that he is the Antichrist or not, certainly he is a great candidate to be the Antichrist, right? Since he is the, the false prophet of the largest false church in the world. But for certain, we can say that the Pope is an Antichrist. And all of the popes from the beginning until now, they are Antichrist, right? In that they are opposed to Christ, they are contrary to Christ, and they are actually servants of the devil, right? They're servants of the devil, right? Whether that is the final manifestation of that, right? The the final revealing of the ultimate man of lawlessness, the ultimate antichrist, or whether that be the ones that lead up to him, right? His predecessors. So in that way, there is a succession, right? (laughs) A prequel, a prequel to what is coming. This is what they are. Here, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Isn't that what the Pope is doing? He's taking his seat in the temple of God. Isn't the church the temple of the living God? We are the temple of God. He's taken his seat in the church, in the temple of God, and he proclaims himself to be God. He proclaims that he has the authority of Christ to rule over the church. And so he's proclaiming himself to be in the position of God over the church. But his coming is by the activity and power of Satan. So should we follow the Roman Catholic Pope? No. And ultimately, who's going to destroy him? God is going to do it, and he's going to do it through his son, Jesus Christ. When he's revealed from heaven, he will destroy him and all those who follow him, right? So if we know Roman Catholics, we need to urge them, appeal to them to abandon that church, come out, come out from among them, right? Lest you be destroyed with them. That's what they have to do. They have to repent of their sin. How can someone be a true Christian and stay within the Roman Catholic Church if it is a false church? And if the head of the church is himself a false prophet? Okay, another passage, Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Here we have these two enemies who are under the authority of Satan, working against the people of God, right? Two different beasts that have their authority from the dragon and then who are waging war against the lamb and then his children. And one of these is 
world religions, false world religions, and false forms of Christianity, okay? The other one is worldly kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world, ruled by Satan, wage war against the church, and the false religions of the world, ruled by Satan, wage war against the church, right? Both of them are trying to overthrow Christ and his people. Revelation 13, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Right, Not conquer them in an ultimate sense, but in a temporary sense, in that putting them to death. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, captive to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So here, this first beast, I take to be the worldly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world who have their authority from Satan and are ultimately working against Christ and working against his people. This would be like Psalm 2, the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain. And they plot in vain against Christ and they plot in vain against the people of Christ. And we have to overcome and endure them. Now the second beast, which I take to be false religions. False religions and the Roman Catholic Church would fit within this category. It says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So here, these two beasts are working in conjunction, in unison together to oppose God, to oppose Christ, and to oppose and undermine his church. 
right? And they ultimately both serve who? The dragon, who is Satan. So, and many times, is it not true that religious authorities and civil authorities, that those two roles go together? In many cultures, in many uh, kingdoms, they may even occupy one in the same position. At least there's overlap between one and the other, right? That they're working together many times for the same common purposes and goals, right? The Pope today is not just dealing with issues that relate to the church, but he's meddling in all sorts of various issues in governments, right? In society, in culture, in what is taking place all throughout the world. So we have to overcome them and not be led astray by them. And any time there is a push, a promotion for some one world religion, let's all get it along, let's all be together, let's all hold hands, right? We've got to fight against this, right? Because it's not from God. Even though it sounds good, right? Let's all get along. It's not good because who are we not getting along with if we go along with it? We're not getting along with God. And we want to get along with God, not with the dragon or Satan or the kingdoms of this world, or the false religions of this world, we don't want anything to do with them. Okay, one last passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Right, and this would be whether you take the Pope as the Antichrist or as an Antichrist, it's still the same. It's still one and the same it's working against God in everything that is good and right. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is, it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning, uh, if... If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. So there he says, it is the last hour. And by last hour, he means this period of time between the ascension and the second coming of Christ. These are the last days or the last hours, right? The last hours. And he says, you know, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. So the man of lawlessness is coming. He is going to be revealed. And even now, many antichrists have come. Yes, he is ultimately going to be revealed. But in every generation, there are going to be many antichrists who are in the world, who are trying to infiltrate the church, who are trying to lead us astray. And then who is the antichrist? Notice what he says. This is the antichrist. This is verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Well, doesn't the Pope deny the Father and the Son? He does in terms of their authority. 
He denies the authority of Christ because he takes it for himself. And if he denies the authority of Christ, the proper role and position of Christ in the church, he's also denying the proper role and position of the Father. So he has gone outside of the authority of the Father and the Son and is himself his own authority, but in doing so, he denies both the Father and the Son, and he is an antichrist. So to call the Pope the antichrist is not a misinterpretation of Scripture. Right? It's not uh, taking something out of context. It's not too extreme. This is what he is doing, and this is what the Roman Catholic Church is, and we need to know those things today because, again, there's always this gravitational pull toward relativism, pluralism. Let's just overlook our differences, find our commonality, and we can all just agree to disagree. We can't agree to disagree on this issue. So we have to say this is a false church, And if we know people in that church, then we need to warn them about the wrath of God that is coming upon the wicked and that they need to repent and flee that church and come come out of it. Just like Lot was drug out of Sodom and Gomorrah, so we need to drag them out of the church in Rome lest they be destroyed when the Lamb is revealed. Okay, so we'll stop there for today, and then we will pray and be dismissed. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it uh, does teach and prepare us, Lord, for all things. Lord, we know that the Antichrist is coming, and Lord, we know that even now many, many Antichrists have come into the world. Lord, we know that we must test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Lord, that your church is always under assault from Satan. Lord, from the philosophies and the ideas of men. Lord, from the kingdoms of this world. Lord, from false religions. Lord, the world, the flesh, and the devil, always fighting against the church, and Lord, always fighting ultimately against you and against your word. Lord, this is what they want to undermine, the authority of your word, your position, your place over your church. Lord, help us to see through these things, Lord, that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a true Christian, and that, Lord, even in this example of the Roman Catholic Church, we have, Lord, millions and millions of people, billions of people, Lord, since its inception, who claim to be Christians, but who were a part of a a church that is completely corrupted and false. So, Lord, help us to to have conviction concerning these things, Lord, to speak the truth, Lord, to speak up, Lord, regarding the reality of what your word says. Lord, to not be tempted to soften our language or our views concerning false religion, Lord, concerning false teaching because we don't want to offend our family or our friends or upset other people. Lord, we know that many people would find us to be very narrow-minded. Lord, they would even claim that we are bigoted, uh, that we are evil, that we are very mean and, and dogmatic in the things that we say. But Lord, if what we say is consistent with your word, then we know it is true and it is good and right. So Lord, may we judge all things, Lord, not based upon the perceptions and ideas of men, 
but rather may we judge all things based upon your word and, Lord, what you declare. Lord, knowing that if we are adhering to your word, Lord, if we are not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, then you will not be ashamed of us on the day of judgment. And, Lord, that is where we want to stand with our head held high. So, Lord, we pray that you give us conviction. Lord, give us clarity. And, Lord, give us compassion as well. Lord, that if we do encounter those who are in this church, Lord, that we would encourage them to search the Scriptures, Lord, to study the Bible with them, Lord, to, to help them in any way that we can, Lord, to bring them to the correct knowledge of the truth. And, Lord, not only for this church, but, Lord, the so many other false churches that we see around us that are not Roman Catholic. Lord, may we help those people as well by going to the Scriptures and opening the Word of God and, Lord, teaching people according to the truth. So, Lord, help us to do this, to have true love, true compassion, and, Lord, to always hold to your word. And, Lord, protect us from the devil and all of his lies and bring us safely into your kingdom. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.